0: says unless the lord builds the house they labor in vain who build it unless the lord guards the city the watchman keeps awake in vain it's vain for you to rise up early to retire late to eat the bread of painful labors for he gives to his beloved sleep behold children are a gift or an inheritance of the lord the fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior so are the children of one's youth how happy is the man whose quiver is full of them They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. And why not? Because they have a big enough army. (laughs) So they won't be ashamed by uh, military defeat. There's enough uh, on their side because they've uh, the full quiver. Preston City Bible Church is a household of households. The Bible calls the, the local church the pillar and ground of the faith, the household of God. You belong to your individual household in God's design. That's not the same as our church, but if your household is part of our church, so you can see we're the household of households. I like to call my model of local church on the question of household, the chocolate chip cookie model. Anybody remember the chocolate chip cookie? You remember. So if you draw a circle around the church family, that's the cookie. If you draw a circle around each family within the church family, that's the chocolate chips. See, that's what we are. And and think about the sanctity involved. There is a fellowship and a sanctity of our being in one another's lives by God's design, because he has instituted local church and we have covenanted together to be this local cell in the body of Christ. And so so there's a sanctity. There's a, there's a, a relationship that, uh, you, that exists between you that, in, the, in the church family that is not the same as outside the church family. And that doesn't mean that other believers aren't brothers in Christ and sisters of Christ. It just means that there's a real thing called a local church. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians 5. Set the person outside as opposed to being inside is what Paul says. There's a circle you draw around the family. Now, that sanctity that we have with one another as individuals within the same family. That's different than what happens between a husband and wife or in a a household, parents and children. That household relationship is a different kind of sanctity. It's a different relationship. And men in our church family are not here to tell women in our church family how it is and what it is to be. That's not how it works. Husbands and wives, that's that relationship. We believe in pastors as men and and elders. the, the scripture presents as men and, and paul says i don 't allow um, uh, women to teach or hold authority over men in uh, first Timothy chapter two and we believe this and, and that 's the creation order that, that Paul goes to there but but the, the relationship between husband and wife and parents and children and if you have a business within your household, that is its own Stewardship—that That is his own sanctity and there is a protection. Let me give you an example that'll make everybody very nervous. When you ladies, one of you ladies should come talk to pastor because you're having trouble in your marriage. I and your husband and anyone else aware of what's going on has a big siren flashing lights going off there is a breach in the sanctity of that private rapport between husband and wife because there's such a horrible breakdown that we need extra help. I need someone I can trust to come alongside us and help us because the thing is, the ship is sinking and we need some help. But notice that when that happens I take it as a very serious mortal situation because there's a sanctity between husband and wife. And I'm going to seek to restore that cell wall. I'm going to do my very best to build that back where it works again and the sanctity is reestablished. That's my goal. That's my mission in terms of pastoring you and your marriages and your families. That's how we should all be with one another. If you have to break the barrier of that sanctity to come forward and deal with someone else. If you need someone to come alongside you, don't treat this like going to the doctor's office. It's not, it's something far more serious. You are taking the trust that exists between husband and wife and the confidence and you're, you're bringing it out to someone else who's a flawed and sinful person. I mean, I'm obviously trying to clear all the marital counseling off my calendar, right? But, giving you a sense of how serious this is and and I'm not saying that don't do it I'm sometimes you need to before the ship sinks let's see if we can get somebody to come out and help patch up some cracks but there's a sanctity I'm just using marital counseling and trouble as an illustration of what I'm talking about there is a sanctity The, the most horrible thing that can happen in Texas let me use a Texas illustration the acronym will be different the, the most fearful thing in Texas is when the CPS shows up. Do y'all know who CPS is? Yeah, in Texas, that's Child Protective Services. Up here, we call it something else, we call it DCF. And uh, the DNC is different, anyway. Um, but, uh, but the, when they show up, why are we so afraid? Why are the ticks and so scared that CPS has shown up? Because there is now a governmental intrusion to something that we instinctively know is a sanctified, it's a, it's a set apart thing. There's a country of, of two. I started by God's grace in 2001, a country of two called Roseland. You know, uh, Roseland 20.0 or whatever. David and Krista. And then God gave us children, and now we have our little country. And that's God's design. That's called a household. Now, we don't think of it that way because we've been told there's a village and it takes a village. And we've, give, we've given all this, this gobbledygook, satanic socialization, sociology, and anthropology to tell us that this design of husband and wife having children being a sanctified household set apart as its own unit, that that's the problem. Well, it is the problem for Satan to get his way in because children listen to their parents and parents that are listening to God have connected their children to God and then you have godly children and then they make godly grandchildren. And, that's, and Satan has trouble with that. So of course he wants to dissolve the household. But that concept of household is the prior understanding you have to have to get into Ephesians chapter five, verses 22 through chapter six, verse nine. Because the apostle Paul is addressing this God-given institution of household, husband and wife, with their children and their business that they run from their household. Proverbs thirty-one has the fantastic Proverbs thirty-one woman, who has a home business, multiple product lines going from her house. She's a purchasing agent for her uh, shipping company. If you read it in Proverbs thirty-one, she's magnificently capable as a wife at home, doing all that she does with as a businesswoman. Read it in Proverbs thirty-one. Her kids don't go cold. Her kids aren't hungry. People work, let the maidens, who are this woman's maidens? They're her workers. They do, they do well. And they've got a good example in their, in their boss. Household is a lost concept in your culture, but we should grab it. We should hang on to it. We should say the culture's wrong. We've let go of the Bible and that's why people don't know about it anymore. And that's why, for example, my favorite recent illustration um, of, uh, of racism was the Smithsonian Institution put out the white culture chart. I hope you got a chance to see it before everyone laughed so loud that they took it down real quick. The white culture chart, which included nuclear family and meaning husband and wife making kids and, and having a household, uh, rugged individualism, individual responsibility, uh, hard work, Christian work ethic, all the stuff that makes for a successful culture was called white culture. It could have been written by the Ku Klux Klan saying that whites are better because they do these good things. It was, it was such an evil thing to call that white culture. You know what it was? It used to be what we would call, get ready for it, regardless of your race, regardless of your ancestry or your genetics. It used to be called American culture. That's what it used to be because the Judeo-Christian faith and all that, all that they said, they, they were really demonstrating a lack of cognitive capability to put that out. But they are attacking the household, the family. Did you know that Henry Ford had to hire, um, basically the way he saw it, he did hire kind of a para-police para force to go fight the labor unions as he was getting his business into a steady state. The way the factory system came up immediately, the workers tried to, to unionize early on in Ford's day. It was a big thing, big political problem and a kind of a black eye, on the, a black mark on the, the, the record of Henry Ford who basically invented the assembly line or modified it to what we had in, in the, the American uh, heyday of, of business production. Why in the world did the workers think that they needed to collectivize and do collective bargaining? Why did they do this thing that the way Ford saw it, and I tend to agree with him, took private property away from the owner? Why did they do this? Why has this been a problem in the industrial age? Well, in part because people are sinners. Bosses are sinners and workers are sinners, right? But what they had people, they had basically like um, Pinkertons with clubs going to break up labor rallies and stuff in the, in the, in the factory. Because this is my factory and I built it and I've given you a job and, and you're not going to take this factory. It was basically how management responded to labor and their demands. Well, what's the problem? What's happened here? Let's take Let's take sin and put it on the table and say you've got sinful, greedy people on both, both sides of this labor management issue. That's true. What does the Bible do about labor and management? What does the Bible say? Think about this. This is a really neat area of worldview. Like I'm, I'm anti-union because I'm pro-private property and I'll never vote for anybody to take your stuff. God gave the stuff. We don't covet it. We don't steal it. That's 10 commandments. Just basic. All Marxism's done. Just satanic socialist stuff. All right. But why, why did they do this? It was because the working conditions they said weren't good and nobody would do anything about it. It was because... There wasn't, uh, they they said there's not enough money for for the time we spend and there's no other work to do. You're so big that there's no other options for competition where we could go as a labor market to somewhere else and work for someone else for better wages. There was all this angst and concern. And let's say that the labor people were half right about their grievances. I'll tell you what, Henry didn't treat Edsel that way. Henry Ford didn't treat his family that way. Henry Ford didn't treat his favorites that way. And what happened with the industrial age, in my view, watching American history, was we started thinking of people only as a resource and stopped thinking of them as God's image bearers. And we started thinking in terms of only what's the person worth in terms of their time and their productivity, almost like you would think of what is a horse worth in terms of his time and productivity. And we did not think of the people as image bearers, as God's image bearers. And we certainly didn't, certainly, listen, we certainly didn't think of them as part of our household. But the Bible presents a different way of thinking. In Abraham's household, there were more than 200 people. It was a small army. He was able to go muster, to go attack the five kings, deliver his nephew Lot. That was his household. It was his business. It was all his shepherds and his massive... I mean, that's a pretty big ranching operation there, especially on the road. They're traveling ranchers, herders. Hundreds of workers in his household. And this is a different way of thinking than we have on this side of the Industrial Revolution and the factory system. And, you know, thinking of interchangeable parts as the product and people as a form of interchangeable part. Now, I believe... If you, if you know what I'm talking about, listen to what else I, I believe. I believe there is a market basis for work. If you do good productivity, then you have more value to the business than if you are non-productive. And I believe the cream does rise to the top, that's the design. Do good work, make a good product, I'll buy it more than I'll buy the bad product. And that's the same with people with businesses hiring But see, the thing is, once you have people that are quality, that you've vetted, that you've trained, that you've worked on, they're not just interchangeable parts in the Bible. They're part of, in a sense, the way the the Bible looked at the industry thing in the Old and New Testaments, they're part of the household. And that is why we need to watch very carefully the household code in Ephesians chapter five and six, well, in chapter six by this time, in management and labor or slaves and masters. If I say slaves and masters, immediately we think of the American civil war and the cotton industry in the South and all the stuff that is really a blip on the historical radar of 2000 years of what's well, of 6,000 years of human history and the fact of slavery. I suspect it was better to be Joseph in Potiphar's house than any assembly line worker for Henry Ford. Think about how the cream rose to the top in that story. And he was a household slave. My point is we need to stop thinking about race and grievance and emotion and start thinking about economics when we talk about these things. This is an economic arrangement, masters and slaves. And what's the difference between a factory worker and a slave? Do you know what the difference is? Slave can cannot quit, a slave can't decide where he works or what he does. He doesn't have self-determination. That's the main difference. Now, when the, when the factory worker starts saying we're slaves in this country, we need to say, "Oh, contraire, absolutely you are not slaves. You can walk anytime and go be a free man out in the sunshine and ask any man that's been released from a prison sentence without a job who walks out of that jail and ask if he knows what freedom is. He does in that moment because he's not enslaved anymore. He's not in a cage. He has not been taken away. He hasn't lost his self-determination. So I, I really want to point out slavery is a problem. Paul says, if you can avoid it, don't be enslaved. There is a huge issue with slavery. But first, before we start getting emotional, we need to think about the economics of the first century. And we need to understand how this applies to us. We don't have slaves today. I am thankful, as I've said last week, I live in a country That we, by constitution, we do not have slavery. There is slavery, but it's outlaw. And if we had rule of law and we had more effective law enforcement, we wouldn't have human trafficking. We wouldn't have sex slavery. We wouldn't have any kind of slavery. By the way, the way I know it's not a thing in this populous country of 350 million people The way I know it's not a major problem in our country is every time somebody comes up, bubbles up and says, I've been held captive as a foreign national in this rich people's household and they haven't let me have any self-determination and I fit the bill for slavery. Whenever this happens, it's national news in a one-off, one case-by-case thing. And if there is a problem with it, it's a big secret and I don't believe conspiracies can be concealed like that. So here's my point. If you have self-determination, you're not a slave but you may find yourself in a situation where there's only one job you can do. You can either do it or not. I'm gonna either work and and feed my family or I'm not. And I could see why in some some fields, some aspects of life, people would feel like they were slaves. I really don't have a choice about what I'm gonna do. Well, I, I believe, especially in this country, there's always a choice. And so I want to be very careful in our application of the household code And I want you to see what I'm trying to point to you in terms of um, business and being successful in business. If you treat workers like parts, then you're misunderstanding what they are and you're being a bad steward of your workers. They're humans, they're made in God's image and you have to recognize that. I didn't say every HR department policy is valid. I said, the mindset, the attitude, like I'm a homeschooler at heart because my kids are mine It's to steward, to train for the Lord in every aspect. And I might use people to help me do that. I might come alongside others that could help me in that process. I mean, the one room schoolhouse with four or five grades at one time, that is a challenge with boys. But I'm a homeschooler at heart. I'm just saying, what's your attitude? What's your mindset? My mindset on business and labor is that you need to recognize what human beings are. And when they work for you, you need to recognize that fact. And here's the truth about stewardship. And I think that the factory system missed. Those humans have unbelievable potential, unknown, untapped potential. And they need to be built into and developed and as you build into people, you build the productivity that they, and, and the success they can produce. And some people are gonna top out here and some people are gonna top out here in terms of responsibility, capability. And you know what's really great? When you find where you're maximally functional. This is what I can do. One of the step above, I can't do it. I better come back to this job. I can do this and do it for the Lord. But that's, that's very different than just seeing people as numbers. And I think, and this is, I'm, not, I'm an extremely conservative person. I'm coming with you, with, coming at labor from Genesis 1, that those workers are God's image bearers. And they may not know that, but you better know that. And you've you got to think of it that way. You're not talking about a, a mule. You're not talking about a machine. You're talking about a human being. So a little more paternalism is actually needed, not less. A little more responsibility of the householder for those in his household. It was needed not less paternalism. We need more fatherly mindset of those in charge. And that's what the Bible would point us to. After all, it is the record of God, the father presenting himself to us so that we would know him. All right. In Ephesians chapter five, I think I've stirred up the pot a little bit on the household, what it is. Now let's get good and angry the wife code in Ephesians 5.22. The wife code follows the command to be filled by the spirit, Ephesians 5.18, with the result that you submit one to another in the fear of Christ. So the power of the spirit through the word makes me capable of being humble, of putting myself, my preferences, my needs under those that I'm serving in some sense. And now we're gonna go from a general sense of, thank you, of humility, Submit one to another in the fear of Christ in Ephesians 5, 21, to wives submitting to their husbands in the fear of the Lord. Wives submitting, submitting to their husbands as to the Lord. Now I know this, this wife code is gonna uh, be news to some of you. Maybe you've thought this all through and you've developed this over time and you're, you're down, you understand the issue the wife code it's the household code Ephesians 522 through 6 verse 9 522 through 69 what's the command that governs the household code be filled by the holy spirit by the spirit the spirit causing the words to, to saturate you so that you're characterized by God by his thinking God is one working in you both to want and to do what pleases him so now we submit to one another in the fear of Christ and the specifics are wives how they do it husbands how they do it Children, how they do it. Fathers and mothers, how they do it. Slaves, how they submit to one another in the fear of Christ, to the master, and masters, how they submit. Now, this does not mean submission, does not mean authority. Jesus submitted. He put himself under us by putting our needs above his own. He put on the towel and washed disciples' feet. So understand, there is a sense in which you submit to authority and there's a sense in which you submit without authority introducing the issue of authority, and it's important to distinguish that. This sloppy inability to make that distinction explains Christian egalitarianism, but that's an oxymoron because the Bible doesn't teach egalitarianism. It's not Christian. It's a corruption of the Bible to say, well, husbands and wives mutually submit to one another's authority. All right, let's get to it. As for the wives, he says, to your own husbands be submissive as to the Lord. Now, he doesn't tell husbands to submit to their wives as to the Lord. He tells wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And so the sense in which you put yourself under in this case is authority. This is an authority claim. And in all of these cases, as I've noted, it's the higher authority is second, lower authorities first, wives and then husbands, children, then parents, slaves, then masters. Why do you suppose that is? Because there's a natural affinity between submission and submitting to authority, between putting yourself second and putting your preferences and decisions behind someone in authority or under their authority. So it is, understand there's a submission in terms of putting yourself under for someone's good, like Jesus submitted to the Father in his authority, but he put himself under our needs for our good servant leader. He's in charge, but he's the one carrying the load and suffering. So wives, to your husbands be submissive as to the Lord, for a husband is the head of the wife, just as also the Christ, the Messiah, is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. If he hadn't said, as to the Lord in verse 22, and then explain headship and bodyship. We might be able to make some sort of squint our eyes and kind of equal authority sharing between the two or something, but that's not how it works. That's not what he said. And I want you to notice, he does not say obey in our English language. There's another word we're gonna hear for children and parents. He doesn't say obey, he says submit. I'm not playing word games. He doesn't say hupakuo here. He says hupotaso, Put yourself under in terms of authority. Now, what's the difference between obey and submit? Well, it's the difference between husbands and wives and parents and children. Do you think there's a difference, men? Some of you knuckle draggers, excuse me, some of you know knuckle draggers who, who think that their wives are here to obey them and they're the, they're the boss and the wife's the one Indi- I'm the chief, she's the Indian Well, that's not allowed anymore. (laughs) Pretty brave, Pastor Dave, saying it that way. Um, That is Chetucket Turnpike right there. Um, I'm I'm the boss and she's the employee or something like that. Slaves are said to obey. Hupakuo, listen so that they obey their master. Wives submit, put themselves under the authority of their husbands. And you might say, well, that's... I'm just saying Paul uses different words because there's a different relationship. It's a still differential authority. Husband has headship authority. Okay. There is an obedience ladies that goes with that, that goes submitting to that, but it is not like parents and children. And those of you who have a good, healthy, balanced appreciation for this and have tried to live it and have succeeded generally in living it know exactly what I'm talking about. Man, she's your helpmate. She was made for you to help you do what God had for you to do. That's the design. That's the blueprint of marriage when God designed woman. And you can read about it in Genesis 2. Woman was designed because man had work to do and he didn't find a helper suitable. And then God put him to sleep and drew out of his side uh, something in which he fashioned into a woman. And then man woke up and said, this day just got a lot better. That was day six. And, and he said, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And then Moses flips the camera to the narrator and says, for this reason, a man will, will abandon, they, he will leave for, for in, the, in the dust, just leave behind in terms of the, the, the closeness. He will abandon his father and mother and he will adhere, cleave, cling to his wife the two have become one flesh that's God's design of marriage it goes back to God's design for man he had work to do and so God made help meet suitable helper suitable for him to do the work that God had for now them to do as a team it's a team but there's a head and a body and that's exactly the way to think about it the husband is the head of the wife just as also Christ is the head of the church and he's the savior of the body unmarried women look at this You are looking at that good-looking dude, as once said, with a head full of hair and a mouth full of teeth. (laughs) You're you're looking at that handsome man uh, as what you think you see, and I hope you're right. But whatever you're really getting, he's going to be the head. And you have to make that calculation. As Jesus taught, you have to count the cost to be his disciple on this one. And so do a thorough vetting. Enlist the support of wise people around you because you're going to end up with a head that you didn't have before. Talk about a permanent addition to the body, a head. Think of it, that's the imagery. Better like it. There's no head transplant that, that God provided for in Matthew 19. And we submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ as the church. And so that's the sense he's talking about. Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of the body. And this points out, men, even when he's talking to the women in the wife code, it tells you what, man, it tells us what the expectation is. You are going to put yourself under, put yourself under your wife in the sense under her needs. So he sacrificed himself. For us but he's the authority and that's the pattern and that's the model and that's our responsibility the wife that dutifully serves we honor we see through the scriptures to to honor but even more we want to see men who see themselves as servant leaders and so there really is husbands and wives a contest see who gets the who gets who the slippers who rubs whose back who's taking care of whom if you're in a contest to see who can love the other the most, uh, both people win. If you're gentlemen, gentleman, if you're in a contest by yourself to see if you can love her like you're supposed to, despite the fact that she doesn't respond, that's a really horrible situation. It's a bad marriage, but you're being a disciple of Jesus Christ and he's gonna honor you at the judgment seat of Christ. Same thing with ladies. If your husband isn't loving you like you should, but you are on mission in your marriage for God's sake, there is honor for you forever and ever and ever for this little drop in the bucket of time that you suffered in a bad marriage as a good wife. Bad marriages don't necessarily make bad husbands and wives. The Holy Spirit is in you and he's there to work in you and you're supposed to be what you're supposed to be regardless of the success of the other person. But here, and that's why Paul breaks it down. Wives, this is your job. Husbands, this is your job. So let's, let's continue with the marriage counseling. In the same way the church submits to the Christ, Thus also the wives to their own husbands in everything. The wives think of themselves like the church thinks of Jesus, like like, like the church thinks of, of itself with Jesus. He's the head. He's the authority. We submit to him. It's real clear. As the one we submit to, he's also the one that puts himself under our needs to support us, to promote us, to provide for us, to protect us because he loves us. Women, it is much easier to do this when you have a husband who is occupied with Jesus Christ and aware of his responsibilities and serving him. In fact, you ought to look as God does on the heart of the man, looking for a man after God's own heart to see if he'll be that man, regardless of what the other factors are, what kind of car he drives. <laughs> I know nobody here is that shallow, but you know the, the things that people worry about. He makes me laugh. Well, he may make you laugh now, but he may really make you cry later. Excuse me, he will make you cry later. It's just how much is the question. Next time, by by the way, next time somebody tells you, honey, I'll never make you cry. You just remember, Peter, Lord will never leave you. Even if they kill me, I'll never leave you. Remember that, it's it's a good intention, but uh, probably not necessarily a wise intention, a wise statement. I'll try to never make you cry. (laughs) All right. So there's an authority differential here. I hope you can see. And there's a responsibility laid on the wives to image the church. You are like the body of Christ. Remember, this is the privileges and practices of the church. And so the illustration that Paul sets up is, is Jesus and the church for husbands and wives. And it's very Challenge. I know that those three verses are hard, ladies. They're hard for you, especially if you have a husband that you struggle respecting. If you have trouble, like he never makes a good decision. Every time there's a question about what's about to happen, I feel like he's going to make the wrong choice or something like that. In which case you need to develop some neck muscles because that head needs help. And if you see that he makes wrong choices, you're not in competition with him. That's Genesis 3.16. That's the fall. You need to help him. And before it gets to anger or, or whatever the, the problem, you need to c- develop a communication together where men, you can benefit from the help your wife offers. Women, you can, you can provide that help. It's a, it's a team effort. And uh, I want all of y'all here at Preston City Bible Church, all you teams are to be winners. All right, when we get to the wives, it seems challenging. When you get to the husband code, it is downright Embarrassing! It is horrifically demand. It's demanding and it is degrading when you compare me to Jesus or any of you men to Jesus. The church is, is not yet resurrected. So it's composed of humans that are sinful, but when one, one day will be resurrected and, and non-sinful, the church is a mess. As you know, the body of Christ, how many people are actually committed to the word that are growing in it and doing it. And it's a small number of those that believe, but Jesus never fails. He never misses a beat. He never gets it wrong. He never He never shirks. He never drops the ball. And men, that is the call on our lives. We are called to be Jesus in the relationship. The initiator, the sacrifice, the one who is providing and protecting. As for the husbands, love your own wives. What's the command to husbands? Love. I put it in red because it's a command. Love is commanded. All through the New Testament, if you have a love that you cannot command to the heart wants what the heart wants, you haven't found Christian love. This can be commanded and it is, and it's one of the central professions of the Christian faith. Again, do Christians in your culture know this? They know love is something that can be commanded. And in fact, it's our number one r- responsibility. Now Christian life of Paul, this verse 25 is the same sentence as John thirteen thirty-four. Grammatically, you can look it up in Greek. I'd love to show you sometime. We've done it in slow, close detail. Doesn't it have the same sentence in Greek? This is one of the things I walk the, uh, the, the young people through that are gonna get married. I make them look at the Greek. That's, that's Rosalind kind of marital counsel. Look at the Greek text a little bit, see the comparison. This sentence is the exact same sentence in terms of its grammar, the particles, the tenses, the voice. Everything's the same, including the person that the verbs are addressing, except that instead of saying, um, uh, you love one another, it says, husbands love your wives. But then just as also, I have loved you. Jesus is the Christ who's loved the church, you. And so it's very tight and how Paul is saying, be Christians toward your wives. I mean, the standard Jesus gives of loving, loving like he loves self-sacrificially in the power of the spirit that is now applied in a specific sense in Christian marriage. Women, are you responsible to love your husbands as Christ loved the church? Are you Christian woman supposed to love that Christian? Are you responsible for John thirteen thirty four toward your husband? Wait, wait. John thirteen thirty four. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. That as I love you, you love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Women, you're one and he's the other. Are you responsible to love him as Christ has loved you? Yes, you're a Christian disciple, but he doesn't command it here. He commands the husband to do it. Why does he not tell wives to love their husbands? Emerson Egerich says it's because he doesn't stutter or repeat himself. And I don't like that answer. Love and respect. It's a bestseller. He's got some interesting suggestions that may may reflect some patterns you've developed, but I don't think he knows why. I don't think his answer is correct. Because he says when men feel like they're being disrespected, then they act uh, unloving. And when women feel unloved, then they act disrespectfully. Isn't that a nice box to put everyone in? I don't think he's right about that. It's interesting, he may be right. I love him, he's a brother, but I don't don't buy it. I think I know why Paul says this. We love because he first loved us. Do you love Jesus? Are you the church, the bride, loving the head, the Christ? Are you not commanded and responsible to love Jesus Christ? Of course you are, but did you start it? No, he loved you first. It's responsive. Women, you're the responder, the man's the initiator. That's why husbands are commanded to love. Guess what happens? If you ladies are responding, submitting to the self-sacrificial love of Jesus, you will reciprocate it. That's what response will be. Submit to that love you're gonna love. And so what happens to your household if you husbands love as, as Christ commanded and you equip your wife by you doing it for her, you equip her to love you and the children as we read in Titus two, to love their husbands, to love their children. If you do your job, husbands, your wives are equipped to do their job. And then what is that whole household? What does that chocolate chip and the cookie look like? We are lovers. We are the people that are Christians and our household is a Christian household that loves one another. And those that come within the, the surrounds of this, of this family, of this household, they see Christian love and they benefit and receive Christian love from the daddy on down to the little baby, the little, the little three-year-old that's learning from the experience and the example of Jesus to the dad and then the dad and Jesus to the mom and the dad, Jesus, and mom to the children. It's, women, yes, you are commanded by Jesus in John thirteen thirty four to love one another as he's loved you. But here, in terms of getting the household to work, getting a good marriage, men, we have to be the locomotive, pulling in the engine, we've got pulling pull in the train, we've got to initiate. So if you have a receptive, responsive, or submissive wife, according to what the scriptures say, who is ready therefore to replicate what you present, guess what you will have if you love her? It goes hand in hand in submission and love are going to produce reciprocating love so that he might now why did jesus do it he he gave himself over as a substitute for so that he might sanctify her by cleansing through the washing of the water in literally in word so that he might and by the way i think all that is a reference to what the word of god does the cleansing through the washing of the water in word i do not believe is a reference to water baptism because water baptism is not in rhema it's not in word The washing of water is a metaphor. It is an illustration for you to, it's an image for you to see what the word does. Cleansing through the word. And he tells the disciples this in John 13, you're already clean from what I've told you, from the word I've given you, but not all of you, because Judas. See, the the cleansing is not about some ritual. We do baptize as a profession of our faith in obedience to Jesus Christ, Publicly demonstrating uh, in, in, in an image what the baptism, baptism of the Spirit has already accomplished. But here, he's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about what the Word does. It washes you like with water. It cleans you up so that he might present. See, you've been bathed, you body of Christ, so that he might have you for himself. Now, we say it's selfless love, but the selfless love we're talking about has a long game, and there is a long-term in God's accounting Benefit. He cleansed the word, the church, with the word, so that he might present her to himself, the glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and blameless. So, what did the church need? This is just this is a long discussion of what love is. The church needs to be set apart to God. It needs to be cleansed of its sins. It needs the word to clean it up. This is what we need. So, what did Jesus do? That. He did what was necessary for us to have the relationship with him that he, that, that he wanted us to have, and that's love. The best thing for us is the relationship and all that's necessary to attain it, and so Jesus provided that, for God so loved the world, that God loved, agapao. he loved the world this way, that he gave his only begotten son. The agape love that we're reading about here looks at what the need is and then makes necessary steps to fill it. And here's the problem with your culture. People don't know what the need is. It's not that we're not active. It's not that we're not seeking to fill needs. It's that we don't know what the needs are. We think the needs are food and clothing and shelter and a phone, a good internet, good solid internet connection. The same amount of money for each person, for each you know, day's work. Everybody gets the drachma or the denarius. We think this is what uh, everyone needs. And it turns out that the richest person you know, the richest person you've ever heard of without Christ is much, is infinitely poorer than the poorest person you know, who's a believer. And that's the eyes of faith. That's what we're talking. We're not living for this life. We're living this life for eternity. So Jesus went and found what, he looked at the church, what do we need? And he went and provided it and he did it selflessly, but he did it and it turns out it benefits him. He gets the church for himself. How do you like being Jesus prize? How do you like being what he wanted and what he went and got? There's a romantic idea here that's sanctified. It's a godly romantic idea. Men don't get all confused about this as far as Jesus coming after us, pursuing us. But when you think of a husband toward his wife, what what would you let get between you and your wife? What would you, what would stop you from having your wife for you, right? No, let's go get some tanks. Nothing. You with me? Tanks. Whatever it takes. Nothing's going to get between me and my wife. And that's what that's what he's talking about. Jesus went as far as he needed to go to get us. Thus, they are under obligation. Who the men. That's the verb is uh, Ophelao, ofel, ofel, I think it's Ophelao. But it, it, your, your Bible says you ought, that's a little weak. It's a big verb. It says they're under obligation, which means they ought. But they are under obligation to love their own wives as their own bodies. I love that love is an obligation, it's a duty. We don't want that, we want an, a compulsion. We want something that you can't help. But this says it's your responsibility. The more I spend time in the word, the more I live this life, the more I really appreciate when God lays on me a responsibility because it carries so much information with it. I believe that if God gives you this kind of command, man, that you are under obligation to love your wives as your own bodies. I believe that when God gives you that kind of obligation, he's saying along with that, and I'll provide the means. I'm not, I'm not torturing you. Go sweep, the, go sweep the porch. Here's a broom right here's some arms and legs here's a body here's the energy system to make it happen here's some gravity to make sweeping possible god's providing for you to do what he's telling you to do the provision involved here some of you have lost your maybe maybe you've you've kind of lost the uh the the hope the thought that this will ever happen maybe you're just ah we, we don't really talk much and that's best or maybe you've, you've lost the idea that, that this could, could be. But what God's word says here is that you can love your wife just like Jesus loves the church because he tells you you must. Oh, I love it. Don't we need a little bit of uh, Burgess Meredith in the, in the corner there? Mickey? In the corner saying, okay, switch over left hand. Time to let him have it, Rock. Don't you need a little bit of encouragement. No, you not only can you do this, you're gonna do this. That's what God's saying here. You are under obligation to love your wives. So stop dithering about, well, I don't know. Figure it out. Necessity is, is wonderful to make you uh, start scrambling for, I, I live, I do benefit from pressure. I am a squeeze player, definitely. It has a way of clearing your head and focusing your energy. When he tells you you're gonna do this, you don't really get to ask questions about, okay, well, do we have enough resources? Um, Am I the kind of person that could possibly do this? Those questions are all answered. Shut up and get to work. Jesus, uh, God, the Father, or God, sorry, Yahweh, the, the Trinity, calling out to Moses, lift up your hand over the water. Before he said that, Moses prophetically stated to Israel, Stand fast and watch the deliverance of the Lord at the Red Sea. They're calling out, God sent us here to die and Pharaoh's going to kill us all. Kill our babies. Stand fast, be still, be quiet. Don't be afraid. The people you see today, you'll never see again. Just watch the deliverance of the Lord. And the next verse in in, in Exodus 14, God says to Moses, why are you calling out to me? He's talking to Moses. Go take your stand and stretch out your staff on the water. I think our life is so easily complicated because we get confused about what we're doing. And we think we're going for preferences or comfort or, 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 or like people like us or something that, that gets, becomes a distraction. And you end up trying to push a shoestring. And that's not how life works, but you're trying to, you know, you're trying to push a piece of wet spaghetti up a, up a sandpaper hill and well, that doesn't really work. And the truth is you need to get on board with God's instructions. They clear away all the distractions. Now you know what you're supposed to do. Well, I don't know what what I'm supposed to do with this marriage. Love your wife. That's what you're supposed to do. There's no other option. There's no other answer. And I'm good for this conversation one-on-one or one-on-a-group. If you ever need to be reminded what you're responsible for in your marriage, please ask me. I will say it a little more gently, like interpersonally one-on-one, but please understand there's no other way. There's no other answer. Well, she's, but she, but she love your wife. That means look at what she needs as God defines the need, and then you seek to fill it. And you ask God to help you, and you find out that the Holy Spirit is empowering you just for such a case. This is why we have the filling of the Spirit. I got so excited to turn off my monitor. The husband code continues for no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it just as also the Lord, the church. What is the value of that statement for your life? How are you going to use that statement? You're supposed to see your wife as your own flesh, like as valuable to you as your own body. That is a head check. That is a thought process that you need to go through. Every one of you every day. That's my flesh. That's what God made because of Genesis or uh, Genesis two, because we are members of Christ's body from his flesh and his bones. Majority manuscripts have that verse the older manuscripts from Alexandria don't have that, that part of that verse from, from his flesh and his bones. But the point is that we're, we're, we're going back to Genesis 2. This is my flesh and bones, what Adam says. And then we have Moses quoted Genesis 2:24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and adhere, cleave, clinging to his wife and the two will become one flesh. The adhere, that word adhere, I've chosen that carefully because we wonder today what cleave means. I mean, a cleaver cuts, what's what is cleave well it means cling cling you cling on you you adhere so you, like i said what's going to keep you away apart what's going to what are you going to let get get between you and your wife i'm not i'm not calling all stalkers okay i'm saying you have to have a priority here and your wife if she's submitting to the lord wants you to think this way about her And if she's not submitting to the Lord, then she's wondering about how she feels or some other thing and needs to get with her mission too. About that. What in this passage tells us how to enforce wives submitting to their husbands? How do you make a wife submit? There's nothing in the Bible for how to make your wife submit. Ladies, what in the Bible will get your husbands to love you? Jesus. Jesus. It's a personal relationship with God for the wife to submit to her husband. It's a personal relationship with God for a husband to love his wife. And there is no coercion. There's nothing provided in the passage because this is about your responsibility. You're not responsible to see through that the other person does their thing. You are definitely there to set conditions to help them be able to because that's loving them. But you don't decide and you don't determine what the other person does. You've got to do your job. This is the one and the many. You are the individual with your job. The mystery is great, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking of Christ in the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you must thus love his own wife as himself and the wife that she fear her husband. There's an elliptical phrase he does in the last verse here. And so my Bible supplies, see to it that she, this is my translation. These are all my translations that she must see to it or she must love her husband, or sorry, fear her husband. Now my Bible softens it and says, see to it that she respects her husband, but it doesn't say respect, it says fear. There you go. Knuckle draggers. (laughs) Now we'll make them afraid. All you got to do is get a little bit loud, a little bit terse in your, in your verbiage. All you have to do is say it like you would say it uh, uh, with the, with the guys, by the way, uh, first Peter chapter three tells us gentlemen in verse seven, that women are different from us. And if we say it and we think it's at a one for them, sometimes it's at a 10. We're saying it. We think it's a, it's, it's a force one communication. She's hearing a force 10 communication. Can't hear the content. She just hears the mean. She just hears the, the, the rough. She just hears the way you're saying it. And I know that some of you, if not all of you have had that conversation and you've been maturing through this where I'm trying to say content and she's arguing about how I'm saying it. It's because of first Peter chapter three, verse seven, they're different from us. Women are different from men. They're made to be different and when you try to insist that your wife think and respond like a man, that is a homosexual impulse. You wanted a woman, Don't, didn't you? Well, you got one, they're different. They're a weaker vessel. If you say it at a one, they're hearing a 10. Ladies, I'm not shouting at you. Understand, I'm not getting loud for you. I'm trying to say it. You're hearing a 10, the guys is barely making its way in. <laughs> Most of the time I've been criticized for screaming as a pastor by women. There's, they say, I I didn't, I can't get up that early to go get yelled at, but I never have been screaming at them. I've always been screaming at their husbands. And you know what? There's a light. Sometimes the light almost comes on. It's it's awesome. (laughs) Man, you say it at a one. Sometimes they hear it at a 10. Don't forget that. That's first Peter chapter three, verse seven, the gentleman verse, the chivalry verse of the Bible. We live with our wives in an understanding way as a weaker vessel for she's a woman so that our prayers are not hindered because she's a fellow heir of life. Now, this is the family basis. This builds a household. A marriage is the first step in building household. And the household code is all under the big command. Let's see if we can review. What's the big command that makes a household code work? What makes you women able to submit to your husbands as to the Lord? And what makes you men able to love your wives as Christ loved the church? What's the big command? Come on, somebody. Be filled with the Spirit. I I can't emphasize this enough. You need to be able to teach this. 518 is the command grammatically. It's the main verb that drives all the way through verse 21. And submit is under, under the command to be filled. The Holy Spirit enables you to submit one to another. And then the household code is how you submit one to another. In other words, I'm not talking to unbelievers about unbeliever marriage. That exists. God designed marriage for all people. I'm talking about specifically Holy Spirit empowered and filled Christian marriage. And it's a beautiful thing. And you're not doing it. See, there's a worship side to this. You're doing what you do for the Lord. You're doing it as unto the Lord. And that's true in all of these relationships. Let's go for symmetry in verse one through four, you have the child and parent code. As for the children, obey your parents. Hupokuo hupakuo, this means to listen in the sense of obedience. So we would translate it obey. Hupotaso means put yourself under, submit. So this is a specific sense of, and it's a, a more authoritative parent to children. As for the children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is righteous. This is dikaios and I would say righteous, it helps us bring out what right means. We say right, and we don't know if we mean God's righteousness, but I think this is talking about if you want to align with God's righteousness and therefore not be walking in constant sin, you children have to obey their parents. Next verb, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Remember the 10 commandments? This is one of the 10 commandments. And what is the promise? That it will go well with you and you will be, um, what was That was macro, this is a fun word uh, on this one. Macrochronios, right here. I wanted to show you this one. Macrochronios, Chronos, time, chronometer, time. Macro, big, macro, like not micro. Macro, big. So it means big time. <laughs> That's it, so it's translated long lived, but you have a lot of time on Earth. It's specifically talking about not quality of life but quantity. You know how how many days you get. That's what he's uh, doing in this translation of of Exodus twenty. That it'll go well with you. What's the promise if you obey your parents and therefore honor them? And honor doesn't stop at being a child in in the household. You leave the household, you still honor your parents. Jesus taught that um, in his uh, discussions with the Pharisees and Sadducees. So you honor is, is a bigger category. Obey is specific when you're in the household. That'll go well with you. You'll be long lived on the earth. As for the fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Do not provoke your children to anger. Pros or gidzo. Pros or gidzo is or gidzo to make angry or to become angry. Pros is an intensifier, and so it has this sense of specifically bringing forth the emotional sinful act of anger. And we have a different command that's slightly that's related. Pr- provoke them um, or. Uh, and they'll lose heart in Colossians 3. But here it's stated, Paul says, don't provoke them to anger. And I think this is partly because children will learn that habit. It will become a habit of mind. And then they will be what you call an angry person if they get into a habit of this. Because as I've told you recently in discussing Ephesians 4, anger feels good in the moment and it's destructive to your soul in the long run. And you don't want to live in anger. You want to be angry and and yet sin not. And you don't want to persist in anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So this is the related concept. Do not provoke your children to anger. Now, he doesn't get into much detail about what that looks like but notice that you're avoiding leading them or setting them up for personal sin. I didn't say you're feeding their arrogance so that they're just monsters. I said, you're setting conditions to help them avoid personal sin. I think that's a very helpful thought process to go through. We don't think about the other person's sin. We're so busy trying to deal with our own, but you've got children, you've got to deal with this. So you're trying to train them to restrain their lusts and That includes the lust to give in to anger. So, but nourish them. The the command is nourish them. And the specific way is in the instruction, paideia, and admonishment. I forget the verb. It's a noun that, nutheteo is the verb. It's nuthesia, yeah, nuthesia is the noun. So that, that word means correction. Admonishment means to correct someone that's out of line. Newthetic counseling is a a model of Christian counseling that says, okay, let's go find what sin is causing all your mental problems because it's admonishment. It's using the word for admonishment in the New Testament. So you nourish them. How do you, and that's also translated bring them up, but the word literally means to feed them and and give them the nutrition they need to grow up. And how do you do it? You feed them God's word and you correct them with God's word because of God's word, not because you're angry, not because they did this to you, but because there's a principle that you're teaching them as you train them through. I believe this verse teaches us there's a big difference between punishment and discipline or training. Between punishment, oh, you did it, you're gonna pay, or training, you have to learn that we don't do this and this consequence is going to hurt. Those are two really different mindsets. One is more vengeful. One is more based on, on uh, getting even or settling the score. And the other is, no, we're training a soul. And you, you know the thing is, you're not gonna be able to get that sin nature out of there. It's gonna be something he or she struggles with for life until the resurrection. What you have to do is train them to restrain their lusts. And that's the instruction and admonishment of the Lord. Finally, for slaves and masters, because I gotta put this to bed tonight, today. The slaves obey the Lord's according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of your heart is unto Christ as unto the Christ. So if you find yourself enslaved, which is the worst economic condition to be in perhaps because you have no self-determination and that can mean abuse of your person as opposed to the government we designed where we have protection of the individual against the tyranny of the collective. See the problem with the people is they're wicked. And so the individual is always in danger of being eaten or hurt by the people. So you had to have a government that stopped the people from hurting the individual and stopped powerful individuals from hurting the people. And thus our checks and balances in our government, you know, in that wicked document of our constitution. But let's say you found yourself outside of our constitutional republic as the generation coming up behind me wants to do, apparently by majority polling. Let's say that, that, and the media certainly does, and, and the democratic establishment definitely does, want to suspend uh, many provisions of protection in our constitution, which, which goes straight to the protection of the individual. Let's say that that happens and you individually find yourself a slave. What is the instruction for you? Or if you're in a situation at work where you have little self-determination and you have to perform, you have duty, obey the Lord's, kurios, translated in your Bible masters, it's kurios, it's Lord, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of your heart as unto Christ. In other words, don't look at him or her, the boss, look at the Lord as you serve the boss. You're really serving Christ. And that is the solution to the mental attitude, sins of bitterness, of feeling like you're a victim, of anger, of of all the things that you could say when you're under an authority that treats you unfairly. You keep, as Jesus did in First Peter 2, you keep entrusting yourself to him who judges righteously. So I'm working this work for God's sake. I'm his workman. And that's the way the slave is commanded in the power of the spirit to think. And you will be like Joseph, who goes from slave to prisoner to prime minister. Not according to eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of the Christ doing the will of God from the soul, literally. And with good-mindedness, eunoia is good-minded. It could mean goodwill. But that's, I just wanted you to hear the, a little bit of the Greek flavor. Serving as unto the Lord as, and not as unto men. So that's the, that's the thing. You've got to stop thinking about pleasing the boss. Don't be that guy that's a sycophant. That's my word. A sycophant. I have a, a more slang term, but I'm not gonna use it. Don't be the person, oh, oh, can I get you another cup of coffee, sir? That's just I service as men pleasers. And that person hates you more than the person that won't talk to you very often, boss. But see, no, you're serving the Lord. Get the Lord as coffee. Do what pleases the Lord. Our ambition is to please the Lord in 2 Corinthians 5. So that's where you need to spend your energy. And it, if you'll think about it, it's hard to do. When you have a boss that's in your face and a Lord Jesus that you've got to think of and put your your heart where Christ is seated at the right hand of the father, you can't see him. You got to get in the word, that's how you do this. But time in the word and focus on the, the savior will solve the boss looming large in our minds problem. And we'll think of the Lord Jesus as the one we're serving. Because you know that whatever, whatsoever each one does that is good, this he receives from the Lord, whether slave or free. You're going to get reward for the service you did that pleases him. That's called the Bema or the judgment seat of Christ again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. I know you can't process all this, but we're recording it. And I want you to hear it as many times as you need to, to get it all down. You know that whatever you do, that's good. Well, the boss didn't recognize that I did five extra hours. Well, maybe you make an appeal, but first let's appeal to the Lord. Father, you know what I did and you know why I did it and you know in whose power I did it. And so I know that there's a recompense. I know that I'll get the reward that you have for me for this work. And it is, it does work that way according to uh, verses five through nine. And as for the Lords or masters do the same things for them. You think of the Lord and how you treat your subordinates. Think of the Lord and how you treat your subordinates. Isn't that fantastic? Who wants to work for a boss like that? Everybody. Who's working for that boss, the Lord Jesus Christ? We all are. And so think of it that way. This person, I'm thinking of the Lord and how I deal with them and not feel. I didn't say feel like emotional or affection. I'm talking about thinking that, that I'm gonna serve the Lord and how I deal equitably and righteously in this situation with my subordinate. Giving up threatening because you know also that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. That's the judgment seat of Christ. You have a judgment coming for how you're a boss. That person has a judgment for how he is a a worker or a slave. And since that's the way it is, we need to stop worrying about all the social engineering and stop worrying about all the stuff and get our spiritual lives in order. Because the truth is that we're not going to control Satan's lost and dying world. What we're going to do is make disciples and save a few, as many as the Lord provides that we can, we can share with. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. We close the service this morning with the words of life for anyone that may be in the hearing of my voice without life, without uh, a relationship with God and therefore without hope in this world. We want you to understand the truth of your situation, all of our situation. The truth is that we are born sinners and lost and separated from God and in desperate need of God's intervention for us to have his life. And that's the only life worth having. The truth is that you are made in God's image for God's purposes. And he didn't leave you without a record of this. He's communicated it through uh, the family of Abraham especially through Moses and those that came after him. He's told us what he wants and what he's going to do, and there's nothing you can do about what God is going to do. There's nothing you can do about how the future is going to play out, but there is something that you're responsible for that the Lord Jesus Christ commands. The Apostle Paul of the Lord Jesus, when asked, what must I do to be saved, said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. The apostle John wrote, these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and that by believing you have life in his name. Apparently, according to John chapter three, verse 18, the standard that God, the sovereign God of the universe is going to judge mankind is whether or not we have the son and we're condemned already. If we believe not in the son. So that's what you're facing right now is what do you do in your heart? What are you going to do with the claim of Jesus Christ? God, the son, eternally pre-existing son of God who came in the flesh of man. They called him Jesus. He went to the cross to pay for your sins and mine. And he rose again on the third day to give you eternal life. And I'm not talking about uh, maybe you, I'm talking about Jesus died for your sins. Do you trust him? Heavenly Father, I am trusting in my Savior, in Jesus Christ. He died for my sins on the cross, and I believe in him. And friends, that is a moment of repentance for you because any claim that you have to righteousness, to satisfaction before God, to anything that you think gets you favor with him is canceled when you say, it is only what Jesus alone did for me. It is only the crosswork of Christ, my only claim. Father, we thank you for this eternal life. Thank you for the the household code and the challenges it provides us, the awesome responsibilities it lays on us and a reminder of the great capabilities you've given us in the spirit. I pray for the marriages, the parents and the relationship with their children and for the the work relationships in this church that you would show your glory as your Holy Spirit fills us and equips us to walk this way in pleasing you. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.